Thanks. It's great to, great to be here today to have an opportunity to be together with you. And, um, and I think just to, you know, to think about you know, what it is that God's calling us to. And so we find ourselves in sort of a funny place today. Um, we're uh, this Christmas checklist series, and we're actually looking today at persistence. And, um, and the story today coming out of Luke is actually a story about a widow who comes and is just persistent in continuing to follow God and ask God to, um, to be involved. So what I want to do today is um, I want us to think about that. Um, I'm going to actually read the passage and then we'll pray together. Um, but, but in thinking about this and sort of understanding what's going on here, um, you know, have you ever been to a court of law before? Uh, maybe, I, you know, sometimes um, Judge Judy sort of flashes in my head, you know, because we've seen, you know, sort of how she runs her court. Um, I haven't been there often, but oftentimes um, we see them on television or we hear about something like that in newspapers. And from time to time, um, these legal cases actually take on, uh, are reported and they make history sometimes. Different things happen. If it wasn't so serious, it would be a little bit more like a sporting contest, because here you have the plaintiff on this side, and the plaintiff's claiming eagerly that he's been wronged by the person that's opposing him. Um, he's got with him a team of lawyers, and they're arguing the case, producing witnesses, trying to persuade the judge that he is right. But on the other side, you have the defendant, and the defendant is the person that the plaintiff is accusing, and he and his team are trying to persuade the judge that he is right. And so the experts that are watching, um, they may have a sense of which way the um, verdict might go, um, but the result isn't known until the judge, much like a referee, actually brings the verdict to bear. In ancient Jewish law courts, um, all cases were like that, not just civil ones. If someone had stolen from you, you had to bring a charge against them. You couldn't go to the police to do it. There was no police available. Um, if someone had murdered a relative of yours, the same would be true. So in every single um, case, legal case in Jesus' day, there was a matter of a judge deciding to either vindicate uh, one party or the other. And vindication or justification here really means to uphold their side of the story and decide in their favor. Um, this word for justification, we really don't see a whole lot um, in the Gospels, but we see it a lot in Paul. And simply what it means is that the judge finds in one's favor at the end of the case. So this parable is really about vindication. Um, the first, obviously so, since it's actually set in a law of court, a court of law, and, but we're still sort of puzzled at first glance because Jesus clearly intends the judge to stand for God and yet the problem is this judge is more unlike God than anybody else. So let's look together. I'm going to actually read um, verses 1 through 8. So um, follow along with me as we um, go through this passage. The parable of the widow and the unjust judge. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray and all, always and not lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In, there, in that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while, he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice 
so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray together. So God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke 18, 1 through um, 2, verses 1 and 2, it goes on and it says, Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. Um, he says that in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. So what makes this parable so effective are these two different characters, and with whom it's actually pretty easy to identify. The widow herself um, is somebody who needs help. Uh, she's a person who's helpless in the society, um, but her only appeal comes to the judge. And, and the authority of the judge is obviously very clear. Uh, we might even think of the widow as sort of an older woman. Um, in the ancient world, um, that's not necessarily true. She could be actually as young as in her 30s, but she is seeking justice and appeals to the judge for help. Um, this involves probably some kind of a vindication that involves money, um, but the woman is persistent, a quality which makes her exemplary in this story. She continues to come and to present her case. It's an interesting point to think about, that the church that does not fear God or respect people can be fiercely independent. And Jesus' argument states that if a judge, who is the, no respecter of persons, um, if he can hear the cry of the widow, how much more will the compassionate God hear the cries of his people? That's really the point that's being made. The fact that the petitioner, main petitioner in the story is a widow, um, does mean that the judge actually has a moral obligation to her. Um, she's an exposed and vulnerable person. And God expected the poor to be um, defended. The widow makes her appeal again and again, and she intends to get justice. She's the justice that she's entitled to receive from her adversary. For some time, the judge doesn't act, but he eventually resigns himself because her persistence wears him down. Um, anyone who's experienced persistence in a request can understand how that feels when somebody actually wears you down. But she constantly is bothering him, is what the Greek implies, that her actions are causing him trouble. Um, he, anticipate, he anticipates that he's, she's going to be worn out by her, um, an expression that actually refers to um, being hit in the eye. The uh, Greek says that he's going to get a black eye because of this. But he's not worried about his reputation. Uh, he doesn't care what others think of him. Um, but he is tired of her persistence, so he decides that he will act. You see, the point of the parable is really to say this, that if even a rotten judge like that could be trusted to do the right thing by someone who pesters him day and night, then God, who is actually justice in person and who cares passionately about people, uh, will vindicate them and see that justice is done. 
So the lawsuit really sort of presents the litigants. Um, they're waiting for God's own verdict. And, and what is this lawsuit really about? I mean, if you take sort of a step back and look at it more deeply, well, um, as N.T. Wright often says, that it's actually about Israel. Or rather, maybe this way of saying it, the renewed Israel who's now gathered around Jesus. They're waiting for God, the vindication that will come when those who opposed his message are finally rooted out. In other words, it's about the same scenario that's described a chapter earlier, the time when through the final destruction of the city and the temple, Jesus' followers would know that God has intervened himself. So this moment, while terrifying, will also function as liberating vindicating the judgment that God's people have been waiting for and praying for. And here's the key. If this is true of the final moment, then it's also true of the lesser moments, which is what all of our Christian life is filled with, all of these lesser moments. So the parable really heavily depends on the social status and the religious duties involved in the roles of judges and, wid and widows. In ancient Israel, the duty of a judge was to maintain, maintain harmonious relations and to adjudicate disputes between Israelites. Widows were um, deprived of the support of a husband. They could not inherit their husband's estate, which passed on to the deceased man's brothers or sons. So disputes involving widows and orphans were very, very common. Listen to Psalm 82, how it comments on this whole problem. Psalm 82, verses three through four says, defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So judges were charged with the responsibility of hearing complaints fairly and impartially, a duty that was all the more important because they did advocate their cases without the benefit of a journey of a jury, excuse me. So Deuteronomy goes on to sort of give a charge to judges. It says this in Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17, give the members of your community a fair hearing and judge rightly between one person and another. Whether citizen or resident alien, you must not be partial in judging. Hear out the small and the great alike. You should not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment belongs to God, Deuteronomy 1. So the judge's responsibility within this covenant community was to actually declare God's judgment and establish shalom, God's peace, among the people. They were responsible for establishing God's peace. In 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 7, Jehoshaphat charges the judges of his day, which included a warning to let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Um, those who felt wronged by a judge often pleaded to God to intervene and vindicate them. And the expectation regarding the care of widows was equally clear. Regard for those in need among the widow and the orphan, the foreigner, these were classic examples grounded in God's mercy on the Israelites while they were themselves in bondage. God will vindicate the widows and the orphans. Those who abuse such powerless persons will surely suffer God's judgment, Numbers hints at. And widows had a place of honor in the early church. Um, following the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures, James declares this, 
James 1.27, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unblemished by the world. The pastoral epistles even hint at the characterizing of widow's piety, which led to continual prayer. And in this sense, the prominence of widows takes on a very real significance. Anna was a widow that um, blessed the infant Jesus when she saw him in the temple. It says that she never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. During his ministry uh, at Nazareth, Jesus recalled Elijah's ministry to the widow. Elijah prided her, pro, excuse me, provided her with meal and oil, and then he revived her son and presented him to her alive. And the point of the passage is that if such an unjust judge will respond to an urgent, repeated request, will not God respond to those who call out in need? And the resounding answer is absolutely. God hears us and answers us and is with us in the midst of it. So let's look together through this passage, and we're going to sort of start with verse 1 um, and just work through and see what we can get out of it. So Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. It serves as sort of an introduction to the parable, and Jesus' practice on prayer and teaching form a reoccurring theme in Luke. And this parable, which is introduced as a parable on prayer, is found only in this gospel. Jesus had a practice of withdrawing for periods of prayer, and there's all kinds of passages that talk about that. Um, it's not surprising, therefore, that Luke interprets this parable as a call to persistent prayer. That's what Luke's point is. Some of the passages, Luke 3, Luke 5, Luke 6, you get, you get the idea that, that God was continually calling them to prayer. Jesus took time to pray and to seek God. But taken by itself, however, the parable may call attention to God's responsiveness to the widow as an example of the poor and oppressed, rather than to the widow's persistence in pressing her case. You know, we can focus on either part of that. We can either focus on the widow or the judge, because either one of those can foster some helpful, fruitful reflections for us. So suggestions such as, why is the judge allowed to be a judge? Does he think that he's somehow above the law? How does all this relate to God's desire to care for the widows, orphans, and the sojourners in our land? What does the passage call us to do? These are all fair questions for us to think about. Verse 2 goes on. It says that in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. You know, it's interesting because it's sort of um, deliberately nonspecific. It's just a certain city, there was a judge, and all the attention is focused on this characterization of the judge rather than where the judge is from. He's a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. And in light of the requirements and expectations for judges, the point is obvious. This judge is totally unfit for his position. The reader can have no confidence that this judge will execute justice 
or administer compassion to this widow. But in this case, Jesus is calling us out as the church. Um, the tension is the, in the parable is created by the surprise that the judge does not act as we expected the judge to act. To fear God in this context would mean either to reverence God or to live in fear of punishment for violating his office as a judge. But Luke emphasizes fear of God in a sense that's consistent with the sages' words. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So God's mercy always comes to those who fear God. Luke responds and talks about the shepherds experiencing great fear at the angelic announcement of Jesus' birth. The disciples respond in fear to Jesus' power, and Jesus instructs his disciples not to fear their persecutors, but to fear God. Those who fear God form a special group. They are recognized for their devotion, and they're open to the gospel message, who it is that God is calling them to be. This judge, however, neither fears God nor respects people. So now enters the widow. She's a main part of this story. And it says in verse 3 that in that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. Her grievance isn't really described. However, it's assumed that she's calling on the judge to make a third party give her what's owed to her. Um, it's either a matter of money or perhaps a and neither does the parable tell us why the judge refuses to hear the case. But interpreters have sort of hinted that perhaps the judge is waiting for a bribe. Maybe he's just waiting to see, you know, how her more powerful adversary will respond as well. We may have assumed that the widow has a legitimate grievance, and the judge is really her sole hope of securing justice and persistence is really her only recourse. But now comes sort of an interesting surprise, a little bit of a twist in the story, because we start to hear now the judge's interior monologue. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, here's his interior monologue, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. So interior monologues are actually a favorite sort of Lucan device. Um, see the rich young ruler, think about the prodigal son. But we're not told even at this point that the judge granted the widow's request, only that he decided to do so. And the judge's sort of interior monologue, it repeats Jesus' characterization of him. Um, whether we understand it literally or metaphorically, um, metaphorically we might be translated that she may not wear me out by continually coming. Um, but the language itself in the Greek is actually drawn from the boxing arena. Literally it means so that in the end, she may not come and strike me under the eye. <laughs> Literally, give him a black eye because of it. And then going on to verses 6 through 7, 
And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? You see, the unjust judge, you know, the one that we can hardly expect really justice from, finally does what is right, if only to keep from being badgered by the widow. And the Lord says, and and the verse says, the Lord said, which again is a reference to Jesus, seems to make this reference clear to us. So how do we interpret this brief story? Well, let's think about a couple of things. If one focuses on just the unjust judge, the point may be to contrast between the unjust judge and the character of God, this God of Israel who serves as a judge over Israel. If even an unjust judge will listen and help the widow and do what's right, how much more will God help the poor? And On the other hand, there's a lesson on prayer that emerges. Um, consider the widow's persistence in coming to the judge. Here the emphasis falls on the importance of praying persistently, earnestly, without losing heart. And Luke introduces the parable with the assurance that God will answer those who pray day and night. In this parable, Luke wants us to see that a parable with only one point may be too restrictive for us. Additionally, the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent window, widow offer opportunity for reflection on the responsibility of faithful care to widows, outsiders, and strangers in our midst. It, it affords us the challenge um, to any theology that tries to tie God's providence to God's compassion. And finally, it focuses on the quality and vitality of one's faith. Maybe another way of saying it is that actions always speak louder than words. How we care for each other, how we care for those that are in our midst becomes so important for us. You know, sometimes we find it easier to sort of worry over the health of, and prayer life of others um, than we find thinking about the well-being and concern of widows. But from early on, the history of the Judeo-Christian tradition, no expression to faithfulness to God is more deeply rooted than the duty to care for widows, orphans, strangers, the powerless, homeless, that are all in our midst. Where do you think Jesus may have come in contact with this lesson? Had he been taught it in the synagogue? Or, or perhaps um, Joseph, you know, Joseph sort of disappears early on in the Jesus story. We're not, we're not sure if it's intentional because um, maybe God is just sort of removing Joseph from the picture, or we're not sure if it's because there's actually been a death and Joseph has died. When he was a boy, you know, had he seen his mother's distress as husbandless, um, as she tried to care for her children and sustain her family. Perhaps this parable is born not just from everyday experience, but from a specific childhood memory. But regardless of well, however we interpret it or see it, it calls us to consider how we give sustained attention to the needs of widows within the church. This unjust judge, 
his failure to fear God or be concerned about the needs of other people really sort of establishes him as the antithesis of God's justice and compassion for the oppressed. God does not protect the property interest of the privileged, but God is compassionate and looks out for those who have no power. So the way of the kingdom, it calls for priorities that are based on compassion, and it's always seen in us serving others. Once God's compassionate nature has been clearly stated, the call to pray and not to lose heart takes on a different tone. To those who are worn out or hard-pressed, lacking help, Jesus says, take time to pray night and day. Unlike an unjust judge, God cares about the plight of those who are seen as unimportant by others. And to those who have the power to relieve the distress of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, but do not, the command is to let the priorities of God's compassion reorder the priorities of our lives. It speaks a word of hope to those who are weary. Hope that God is here and that God is coming. The time is growing short. God will not tarry. And this parable reminds us that we need to re-examine our faith. Have we turned a deaf ear to those that we know are in need? Um, have we given up hope that God hears our calls and our cries for help? What does faith require of us? What about even faith as small as a mustard seed? Or perhaps the faith of a widow who keeps coming and coming and coming. The Pharisees know that Jesus teaches that the king and coming of the kingdom that he's presented himself, that he has a role in bringing that to fruition. And they know that Jesus' ministry does not look like the ministry of the kingdom that they expect. They ask him to explain his teachings about the coming of the kingdom. And it's not surprising because such a question was also asked of John the Baptist. But the Pharisees' expectations need changing. They will not need to point here or there and announce what they have found because the kingdom of God is actually in their midst. It's actually within their reach. And Jesus' point is that the kingdom hope is present in his presence. It's already here. It's just a matter of bringing it in and allowing it to be and seeing God's grace in the midst of it. All efforts to try to determine where it might be are located uh, be located are a waste of energy given its proximity because the kingdom of God is already here right among us, available to us. And so this word ends with a little bit of a word of encouragement, but it also ends with a sobering question, verses seven and eight. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones? who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them, and yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? 
It helps to keep our focus on this attitude that we should have about Christ's return. Uh, It portrays the importance of prayer for God's vindication of the saints. If we minister in a world that will not accept them, then how should we handle injustice and rejection ourselves? But the answer comes in a call to pray persistently without losing heart. It's another way of calling for enduring faith, to not give up, but rather to persevere in the midst of it. So Luke often treats this issue of prayer, protection, and hope, and the point is made emphatically when he again uses this word in the Greek, delay. It's it's important to maintain faith in the light of patiently waiting for Christ's return. Jesus says, listen to what the unjust judge says. That is, reflect on his reaction to the persistent widow. It pictures the prayers of the saints. God will vindicate God's people who constantly cry out to him. If an unjust judge uh, responds to such pleas, God will certainly respond to such cries from his own chosen ones. Verse 7, and will God not grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? Verse 7 makes it clear that it's justice or vindication will be delivered. God will judge those who persecute the righteous. He will not delay, but will vindicate them with justice and quickly. And so God longs to vindicate the saints. When he does, his justice will be swift and sure, and our suffering will seem short-lived compared to the glory that's to follow. But in the meantime, God walks with us and God protects us. Verse eight, I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So there's one final thought that remains. When total vindication comes with the son of man, Jesus Will he find faith on earth? In other words, will the delay, which is to some degree assumed in the parable, affect the faith of some, since Jesus calls us not to give up in verse 1? And there's really no answer that's given to this question, but Jesus calls for faith and prayer to to hang in there for the long haul. But it's important to also realize that for Luke, the kingdom comes in stages, There are some of the blessings that are available right now with Jesus. For example, there's the offer of forgiveness. There's the initial defeat of Satan um, in Jesus's ministry and at the cross. There's the provision of the spirit that's given after the ascension. And the kingdom presence is manifest in in the Christian community, founded on the confession that Jesus is Lord Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Son of God. The church now bears a cross, not a sword. We're instruments of God's service and faithfulness. And one day, we will be exalted and honored as Christ's bride. But there's another phase of the kingdom authority that comes in the future. The day will come when God will show his power. The saints will be vindicated and justice will be accomplished. It will be a period of joy or despair, 
depending on how one is related to the Lord. In the interim, we're called to lose our lives and to offer ourselves to the Lord's service in honor of him. So many go on with life as if the Lord will never return, but we have to actually serve him with an awareness that he may return at any moment, a day which means disaster for those who do not know him. And the longer that the time goes on until the Lord returns, the more relevant this parable in Luke 18 becomes. It's a call for prayer, persistence, and patience, something that becomes more necessary the longer we wait. And the basic of this parable is an attitude about facing injustice as believers. Not everything will be just in our lives. But our call is not to strike back in kind, but to turn to God and rest in the promises that God has made to vindicate us. And so the parable is both an exhortation as well as it is a promise. And this point is as as valuable right now as it was 2,000 years ago. We must pray and keep looking to God for the vindication that he will bring to us someday. We tend in our culture to stay away from the God of judgment, but behind judgment is a God of accountability. We require justice in our everyday lives. I mean, what would our streets be like if there was no law and order, there were no courts or prisons? But justice reminds us that we can't just do as we please, we're accountable. We're accountable to God and we're accountable to each other. And then finally, this text calls us to faithfulness. When the Lord returns, will there be faith on earth? I'm gonna call the band to come back up at this point, but I want us to think about that. When the Lord returns, will there be faith on earth? You know, the church today, it exists as resident aliens. We're an adventurous colony in a society society of unbelief. Western culture itself is void of a sense of journey, of adventure, because it lacks belief and not much more than the cultivation of an ever sort of shrinking horizon of self-preservation and self-expression. When we go down those roads, we travel in a difficult area To experience the divine favor that comes from sharing in the kingdom promises, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they need to deal with him. And it's no different today. In the face of great debate, whether Jesus is the only way, the Lord stresses that the road to blessing and participation in God's presence, it actually travels right through him. To follow Jesus is to be different. It's to be countercultural. It's to allow God to be in charge. And there's really nothing that's more speculated than Christ's return. You know, some ministries give their full attention to those concerns, while others just sort of view them as a bit of a waste of time and energy. But God knows how it will all turn out. So we should just do what we know we're called to do in the meantime which is to faithfully serve God and to love each other. 
Scripture outlines the future, but not with detailed dates, but with a general outline of what's to come. And the outline's designed so that we wouldn't just prepare charts, but it's really designed to prepare our hearts to be ready for Christ's return. The return of Jesus is serious business, a time when God will be engaged in definitive judgment. And the world is headed towards an end when many will simply engage without much concern for God. But every moment until the Lord returns is an opportunity to be God's instrument to change the testimony and the destiny, excuse me, the destiny, the testimony and destiny of someone who does not yet know God. And God's delaying the judgment, being patient and allowing time for others to come to him. And the moments that remain should motivate us as a church to be a vessel through which others come to know Jesus and learn to live in the grace and fellowship of God's presence. So the major application of this parable is to keep our eyes focused on the hope that is yet to come, the hope that's present in Jesus. When the request for an opportunity to share with a friend or neighbor comes along, it can be challenging, but it also gives us an opportunity to actually share our story with somebody. And as we wait Christ's return with expectation, um, we remember that God wants us to serve out of kindness and goodness and to serve with good works. When we pound on heaven's door, it reveals something significant about prayer. We, we find that we can pray for each other's needs. Usually it ends up being things like um, finances, health, that kind of thing. Uh, we pray for leaders in our country and missionaries. But what we often miss in such prayer meetings are the types of concerns that are reflected in this parable a call for persistent prayer. We are to pray in earnestly for the vindication of our testimony in the world and for our eventual redemption, excuse me, eventual redemption by the hand of God. Let's pray together. So God, we give you thanks that you love us and that you are with us and that you are a God who continually works through us and works in us. We ask you to give us grace and peace and to surround us again with your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Gary, you've been with us since uh, July of 2014. And uh, I'm sure I speak for many people here that my walk for Christ is richer and I'm more spiritually mature because of your teaching. And probably more importantly, Gary modeling what he taught. So I'm grateful to God for that. In um, Galatians 6.6, 6, it says, Let one who, is, who was taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Hmm. And uh, so we're going to, I'm just going to get things started today by sharing something personally that uh, I've I, I feel I benefited from your teaching, and it's your series on prayer. My prayer life is richer, and uh, it is much more significant and deeper because of the series of classes you taught on prayer. 
So I will be eternally grateful for that. And uh, secondly, I want to share another scripture as well in uh, first, our second uh, Corinthians uh, 4.18. It says, what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. So I know a lot of us, there's a lot of unseen things uh, that uh, we are going to take it to eternity with us because of you being with us. So I'll be eternally grateful for that as well. So my prayer, uh, my prayer has been and will be and will continue to be that uh, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind as you go into the next season Amen. of your life. Amen. So thank you for that. So I'm going to invite the elders, uh, staff, or anybody for that matter, to come forward, and we'll pray with Gary. And, and as those people are coming forward, give God a hand clap of praise to honor Gary. So thank you. Why don't we go down here so it's... Let's, let's go down here so it's easier for people to come forward. Lord, um, we are grateful that Gary is part of our church family here at CLC and our community. We are grateful for uh, the significant contribution uh, that he has um, left with us. Lord, I pray a special blessing, a blessing of um, your peace um, that would guard Gary's heart and mine as he enters into the next season of his life. I just pray that the next season of his life will be one of joy, uh, and he will prosper in many ways, and will continue to be an influencer for the kingdom. Lord, we um, humbly and gratefully pray, pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Gary, love you, brother. Seated, uh, or no, standing. You can remain standing. Sorry, that was that was not helpful there. Um, as we joyfully uh, praise the Lord for what Gary has been to our church, um, and we sing together.
So receive the benediction today. Um, it's taken from Jude, um, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace today. Amen. And go to the lobby where we'll be celebrating Gary. Enjoy some treats and let him know what he's meant to you. Jesus, you are my rescue. Jesus, you are my rescue. I give you everything I am. Jesus, you Stretch your 
Fly. 